Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, what we have here today in our gospel reading is a good old-fashioned showdown. A showdown that's been brewing for some time now. Let's call it three years in the making. Because that's how long our Lord Jesus has been carrying out now his public ministry. From his anointing and his baptism to this point today where we pick up the story in Matthew's account. The setting from our gospel lesson in Matthew 21 is the Temple Square, Jerusalem. Towards which Jesus and his band of disciples have been traveling for quite some time. But numbers-wise, this showdown might seem lopsided at first because it pits Jesus standing solo versus the first dispatch of any number of so-called temple rulers. I like to point out that these chief priests who refer to themselves as temple rulers, I like to put it in quotes because really they're supposed to be mere stewards of the mysteries of God and what they, that's what they really are, but as so often the case, just a little taste of power on the tongue can become intoxicating to some and lead directly to an inflamed ego. And that's pretty much what happened there with the temple leaders, the rulers. But I suppose you cannot deny anyone's chutzpah, right? Who races into a situation to take God in the flesh on himself, whom, of course, Jesus is. And the Jewish leadership um, really belongs in quotes as well, because who's the true leader of the people of God? They're going to encounter him face to face. And so there's going to be a lot of things in quotes in today's showdown, because today's battle is one of wits and words, not actual weapons of warfare. Although it won't be long uh, before literal swords are unsheathed coming up in the Garden of Gethsemane. But this showdown today is earlier in Holy Week, and Jesus has been consciously and purposefully advancing ultimately to Good Friday and to Easter, as from the beginning of his earthly ministry, ministry onward till now. For three years, this has been what Jesus has prepared his disciples for, although we learn from later uh, scripture that Jesus himself has always known that he was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, as Revelation 13 says, for example. So just to go along then with that three and the three years in the making idea, for the purposes of this sermon, I would also like to lay out three combustible factors that lead into this initial Holy Week showdown on the temple courts. These three flammable factors I want us to look at are, number one, location, number two, provocation, and number three, misrepresentation. Those three areas. Let's start with location. And by location, we are, of course, talking about the holy city of Jerusalem. So there's more quotes then around that moniker, the holy city, because... As Jesus has already stated, somewhat sarcastically, that it could never be that a prophet would die outside of Jerusalem, that holy city. On his way there to Jerusalem, leading his disciples, Jesus has met and dealt with many, many needy and sincere people, people for whom Jesus has shown great compassion. 
in the form of healing them, feeding them, or even out of love, rebuking them and teaching them a better way of thinking about God and his kingdom. Of this latter group, Jesus' own disciples fit comfortably into that category. People whom the Lord lovingly rebukes and teaches a better way of understanding grace and truth that come through Jesus Christ. So by the way, this is also a category into which we fit very nicely ourselves. We do not come to uh, God's Word on Sundays and even Saturdays now. Uh, We don't come to judge it. Rather, God's Word judges us, rebukes us, and lovingly teaches us. The Holy Spirit, through God's Word, always calls us back to repentance and forward in faith. And faith in its transformative power to change us from the inside out, straight from the core of the heart, even as we admit our own inability to change ourselves. For his disciples, examples of this kind of teaching and loving rebuke are those times that Jesus tried to prepare and forewarn his disciples concerning his own suffering and death, specifically all that which is awaiting him, looming there in Jerusalem. The third and last time for such a preparatory warning that Jesus gave his disciples was in Matthew, the last chapter we looked at, chapter 20, which, unfortunately, our lectionary readings skipped over, but it's there. In chapter 20, verse 17, Jesus shows his disciples that he is very aware of what's lying there ahead of him, and for the disciples as well as they quickly advance on Jerusalem. So Matthew 20, verse 17 says, Jesus took the 12 disciples aside and on the way said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death. And then they would deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, to be flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. So this warning Jesus gave while still on their way up to Jerusalem. But another very flammable piece of kindling that will soon combust into this explosive conflict Jesus will have with the chief priests and scribes is the unprecedented way in which Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem. This was no small piece of kindling. That triumphal entry, as we call it, was a huge factor with all the talk ablaze of a Messiah. All this as Jesus enters Jerusalem, as our epistle reading describes him, humbly, on a lowly donkey, a beast of burden, in fulfillment of Zechariah's Old Testament prophecies, specifying a donkey, just as it happened during Jesus' Passover time entrance here. Soon, like a pack animal, they bear the load. Jesus himself will bear the burden of all the world's sins on his back. This death on a cursed tree was necessary as Jesus kept trying to explain in order to make us sinners acceptable before God our Father. It makes us who place our faith in his substitutionary death acceptable even while it also becomes grounds for Jesus' own people to reject him as Messiah. But before the city crowds 
cry out for Jesus' crucifixion, here at his entrance to start Holy Week off, Jesus is greeted rather with shouts of Hosanna, save now. Well, it is on this brink of their Passover observation that a jealous cadre of seething Jewish leaders stand watch while all glory, laud, and honor flow in Jesus' direction. Mind you, these are the chief priests and elders. Up in Galilee, it was for the most part lower-level priests who were dispatched by these ruling or chief priests in Jerusalem. Formerly, the ruling religious leaders in Jerusalem relied on others' reports then uh, about Jesus' um, goings-on. But you can tell things are now getting closer to that ignitable center as soon as the top brass shows up for a showdown. All this is attributable to location. Besides location, as one of the combustible ingredients leading to today's conflict exploding. Next, there is provocation. And by provocation, I mean Jesus' provocation. These two, location, provocation, they logically go together because now having arrived at this location, downtown Jerusalem, Jesus can now go to work just by being who he is and also really to start deliberately to needle these guys. What does he do while at their sacred temple? Well, the word cleansing, put in quotes, because that sounds way too cheery, like a house cleaning commercial where the crew comes in with their foaming tub and tower cleaner to really get this place sparkling. Well, there will be sparks, all right, but of an entirely different nature. Matthew's wording is as follows. As Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who were buying and selling in the temple, he began to overturn their tables. The money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons were all turned over. After this eruption of righteous anger, or call it holy violence, Jesus issues a public rebuke from coming straight from the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah that he quotes. It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you may get a den of robbers. Well, after this cleansing, Jesus does not go away. He returns to the temple later and sets up his own rabbinical school, his own teaching opportunity. He's essentially pouring oil on the existing kindling right now. This, unsurprisingly, is taken as a threat to the local leaders, the established power brokers of the temple. Guess whose turf feels invaded now? Such deliberate acts on Jesus' part are clearly provocative. That bear has been poked. At this point, the leaders are thinking, Something must be done quickly about this blasphemer, Jesus of Nazareth, and get on it now. Well, they agree with each other on that much, but their collective schemes, so far at least, are no match for their one opponent, that one opponent about whom Peter would later say, Lord, you know all things. Sure enough, Jesus, in their first ambush, rather exposes and embarrasses them, this first detachment. 
So as we look more closely at this first flare-up, it brings us right up to date in today's gospel lesson, starting there in Matthew 21, verse 23. And it brings in now this third combustible ingredient that explodes into today's showdown, misrepresentation. The first detachment that shows up here in verse 23, they seem intent on publicly embarrassing Jesus because the text says, as he was teaching. So these guys come right up to Jesus in the middle of his teaching and basically interrupt him with what they think is a real zinger that will make a short order of this pesky Nazarene. He'll leave, and then they can all get back to being the big shots of the temple's turf. By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? They demand of Jesus. Well, they must have thought this ensnaring zinger up pretty hastily on the way there, perhaps, because their whole intent to embarrass Jesus will backfire badly on them. They, of course, seeing themselves as the duly appointed authorities around the temple grounds, they knew for a fact that they never officially recognized Jesus' authority. So where can this Nazarene go then in response to their carefully crafted question? They think to themselves, if he says that we authorize him, well, we'll, we'll deny that right out of hand. If he steers clear of that, well, then to whom else could he possibly appeal? He'll either say, nobody granted him this authority and be done with it, or maybe we'll catch him making one of those grandiose statements about himself where he claims to talk with God and God speaks directly back to him. Who does he think he is anyway, Moses? We will expose him now for the blasphemer that he really is. Well, Jesus has a response. And we want to start way back in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. That's where we first hear Jesus teach on what are called the Beatitudes. With those blessings, Jesus launches what scholars, and now even non-believing literary scholars, they consider this one of the greatest teaching moments ever to have taken place in Earth's history. The wisdom, the compassion, the depth, and the comfort among the many James, uh, excuse me, gems contained in that Sermon on the Mount, which it is famously called. Among those now we find this pertinent jewel, one which Jesus seems now to have in his mind as he crosses swords verbally with these chief priests at the temple. The gem I'm speaking of which I'm speaking of is from Matthew seven. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before swine lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. So instead of Jesus citing the many prophecies that he fulfills in the Holy Scriptures, instead of the weight of empirical evidence demonstrated in any or all of his miracles, even instead of his Father's voice from the cloud that witnesses also heard, Instead of all the authoritative weight of that that Jesus could have cited, Jesus rather, in his wisdom, chooses to point to John the Baptist. Now, John being the very same prophet that once pointed to him, Jesus, saying, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. 
Here, Jesus introduces John into the dialogue with these deceitful temple priests and elders. Jesus avoids the casting away of precious pearls and instead, instead responds to their question with a question. I will also ask you one question. If you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. From where did it come? From heaven or was it from man? That's what Jesus asks them. Matthew's account following our Lord's reply reveals what a masterful move it indeed was on the part of Jesus because the reaction he garnered was this. As they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe John? But if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John indeed was a prophet. So they they backed up and punted. We got the football season going. That's what they did. They said to Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus then said to them, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, notice, immediately following those chief priests and elders being stumped publicly by Jesus, what does Jesus do? He goes right back to what he was doing on their turf when they first found him. Jesus goes back to teaching on the temple grounds, unfazed. But now his teaching is directed where? At them. Although Matthew does not indicate that they even realized that Jesus' parable was aimed at them, not until until Jesus goes on and gives yet another parable a bit later. Then they finally perceive that they were the ones in the mind of Jesus' teaching. At that time, they still couldn't do anything about it, uh, this Nazarene nuisance, because they feared the same crowd in front of which they thought they would embarrass Jesus, and it actually turned out to backfire on themselves. They will remember that day that they chose to challenge Jesus and fire away at their unrecognized Lord. This instead of repenting and keeping with one of Jesus' last offers for them to repent. Repent and be forgiven. They passed it over. Jesus won that showdown at the temple that day. But for our compassionate Lord, it was never about winning a face-off argument, was it? No, Jesus is about winning back a lost soul, or all the lost souls, plural, by speaking the truth in love. And that has always been God's aim, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Way back even in Ezekiel's time, we see how our God changes not. The Lord's heart of compassion is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that means there is still time to hear his words. There's still time to heed his words, turning from a crooked and twisted generation, as Paul describes it in our epistle reading. This was God's plea way back in our Old Testament lesson, Ezekiel's time. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn, turn and live. In a few moments, we will indeed ourselves turn. We'll turn to the table of our dear Lord 
the table that he sets before us himself. We turn there and live. Live for eternity, starting now, this day. For what he gives you there is what he won at the greatest showdown of them all, at the cross, as proven by his resurrection from the dead three days later. St. Paul writes, And having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he, Jesus, made a public spectacle of all of them, triumphing over them at the cross. That was a victory, not a defeat. Believe it. Receive it. And freely give it away to any and all who need it. Jesus invites you to hold fast to this word of life. Amen. And now may he who began this good work in you bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Amen.